this was one of those things that was always there to divide us, to pit us against each other. And it was convenient because it was, it, was, it was always there. And Fascism in the United States is on the rise. And it is clear on what it will do. It will go after the socialists, the trade unionists, and the Jews, because that is what it does. If everybody thought like an organizer, that would be a great first step in order to protect and preserve American democracy. Within organized labor, there, there was a refusal to have a real honest-to-goodness discussion about the complexity and nature of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This was the first climate COP where we recognize as a global community that we need to transition away from fossil fuels. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast, weekly produced by the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock. On today's show, Rick Smith remembers Dr. Martin Luther King. Will 2024 be the year of the fascist? How to preserve democracy in 2024? Bill Fletcher Jr. on a ceasefire in Gaza, and a COP28 recap with Lauren Baker. This week's featured shows are The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk, Radio Labor, bringing labor's voices to the world, Union Talk, the podcast from the American Federation of Teachers. Union or Bust, a podcast with two union activists discussing organizing unions and politics, and The Checkout, centering the voices and efforts of essential workers on the front lines of our food system. That's all coming up on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Is the voice of a working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to, lots to talk about. It is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a day of remembrance. A day to think back and remember the history of the country. A day to think about African-American history. A day to think about the civil rights movement. A day to, well, think about the history of America. And I, I know, I know, I know I'm going to get some, you know, are you talking, you know, that, that theory about race that's critical? Kind of, kind of talking about actual history. Uh, and, and kind of what made me back in 2015... Uh, pack up the kids and and the show and 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 head out on a I think we were almost almost a month we were on the road traveling throughout the southern U.S. Uh, looking for history, going to the places across the South where we treated black people really really poorly, and in those places now we have tourism. Uh, it's almost like hey, come see how bad we were, uh, see how bad we were to people, how we mistreated people, uh, and and just how bad we did. And I remember when we started. Now, as, as a white guy, you know, I grew up in a housing project on the, on the west side of Cleveland, a minority in a, in a minority community. I had always thought that I had kind of, of an understanding 
of of you know race relations of 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 the tensions between blacks and whites and and the fights that went on it wasn't until i did that tour and look you know i was i was well into my mm-hmm, <laughs> i was older let's put it that way it wasn't until then that i really realized just how bad our history was and and the images that we saw, the, the places that we visited, the people that we spoke to, the stories. And understand, this wasn't ancient history. This was in a lifetime. This was, you know, people sharing their lived experiences. And, you know, I, I remember going to Birmingham, Alabama, where, you know, some of the, the some of the worst things uh, took place. And I remember looking at the door to the cell where Dr. King was held. And, and behind that cell door wrote letters uh, from the Birmingham jail. And, and, and putting my hands on that cell do- door and thinking about what that meant and how far we've come as a country and and how f- much further we need to go and and the divisions that 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 it's caused and and what it meant to, to everyone and the the thing that kept coming up in in our trip is that race was always used as the dividing tool to keep people against each other for economic purposes. And for me, it's always been about the economy. It's always been about ensuring that people can put food on the table, keep a roof over their head. Anybody who's watched this show or listened or or paid attention to us over the years knows that that's the focus. I've always believed it's not about white or black. It's not about red hat or blue hat. It's about green. It's about money. It's about the economy. It's about workers getting a fair share of the wealth that their labor creates. It's about ensuring that families have enough food to put on the table, about kids having opportunities. It's about that American dream. It's about that thing that I grew up believing in as a kid, that if you worked hard, you played by the rules that you got ahead. And race was one of those things that was always there to divide us, to pit us against each other. And it was convenient because it was, it, was, it was always there. And you, you, we went to a place in Tennessee where, you know, if the, the white miners went on strike, uh, the, the governor would send in the convicts because they had a convict lease program where they'd, they'd send in the convicts to break the strike. And the white miners would be mad because you got these these black miners coming in, taking their jobs without understanding that, hey, these are prisoners that are being marched in here, being sold to these companies. And it's really the it's the wealth class. It's the moneyed interests who are screwing both both sides over. And what I came away with and what I, I come away with every every time I sit down and I think about this is. The sooner we we put we heal this division, the sooner we figure out how to to bridge this gap, the sooner we're able to unite and go after the real problems. And that's the people who have been lining their pocket at our expense. And Dr. King understood that. Until next time, this has been The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk.
This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, January 12, 2024. I'm Mark Belanger. First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak out for me. Hitler, Mussolini, Franco, and... In 2016, I declared, I am your voice. Today, I add, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. I am your retribution. Not going to let this happen. In the 2020 U.S. federal election, 75 million Americans voted for Donald Trump. He is now tied with Joe Biden in the polls as the country heads to elections to be held in November of this year. Fascism in the United States is on the rise, and it is clear on what it will do. It will go after the socialists, the trade unionists, and the Jews, because that is what it does. But it will also attack members of the LGBTQ community, the disabled, women, immigrants, people of color, and many others. It is a clear and present danger. And it is coming to the USA legally, just as the Nazis did. That is why it is so important, especially for trade unionists, to understand what is happening so it can fight back against the fascist attacks on democracy. One of the distinctions that has to be made is the difference between fascism and authoritarianism. Fascism is much more dangerous. To explain why, Robert Reich, a leader of the progressive forces aligned against the fascists in the U.S., has produced a video about authoritarianism. Mr. Reich is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley. He was U.S. Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration. Is Donald Trump really a fascist, as some would say? Or is the word authoritarian sufficient? The term fascism is often used loosely but you can generally identify fascists by their hate of the other, vengeful nationalism, and repression of dissent. To fight these ideas, we need to be aware of what they are and how they fit together. Authoritarians believe strong leaders are needed to maintain stability, so they empower strong men, dictators, or absolute monarchs to maintain social order through the use of force. But fascists view strong leaders as the means of discovering what society needs. They regard the leader as the embodiment of society, the voice of the people. I am your voice. I alone can fix it. Authoritarian movements cannot succeed without at least some buy-in from establishment elites. While fascist movements often seek to co-opt the establishment, They largely depend on fueling resentment and anger against presumed cultural elites for supposedly displacing regular people. Fascists rile up their followers to seek revenge on the elites. The out-of-touch media elites 
The political elites. But the elites from the elites who led us from one financial and foreign policy disaster to another. Authoritarians see nationalism as a means of asserting the power of the state. To fascists, the state is a means of asserting superiority. Fascists worry about disloyalty and replacement by groups that don't share the same race or bloodlines. Authoritarianism imposes hierarchies. It's about order. Fascism's idea of order is organized around a particular hierarchy of male dominance. The fascist heroic warrior is male. Women are relegated to subservient roles. Fascism seeks to eliminate homosexuals, non-binary, transgender, and queer people because they are thought to challenge or weaken the heroic male warrior. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it is all about global solidarity. Welcome to Union Talk. I'm Randy Weingarten. Welcome, everybody, and Happy New Year. And this is Union Talk, and I'm Randy Weingarten. And we have an amazing, amazing guest today. But it's kind of reverse roles, because <laughs> our guest today is Zerlina Maxwell, who is an amazing journalist who has a show called Mornings with Selena. And so it is an honor to have you on this podcast, Selena, and welcome. Thank you, Randy, so much for having me. There are certain parallels to other points in American history that we can look to and learn from, but we're also in a unique moment in American history. And it's no coincidence that we're in this moment. I, I wrote a book, The End of White Politics, using the data that says that American American democracy is going to change fundamentally because in 2054, there will be a minority white electorate. And a lot of people like to say in the media, like to say we'll be a majority minority country. But my friend Jess McIntosh always says that just means that there will be fewer white voters. That's all that means. Just say white mm-hmm. voters will be the minority in the country for the first time. And that that could have some dramatic consequences for who is elected, who represents the American public. Um, as legislators and what policies we actually have to govern ourselves. And so I think that we're in that sort of tipping point towards the multiracial democracy and the promise of post-reconstruction. But we're also in a moment that's incredibly dangerous because Donald Trump in many ways is a manifestation of that demographic shift and that fear around the demographic shift. And so we know he can incite violence, whether he's being charged for it or not is a separate question, but we know he can mm-hmm. incite violence. He is presently trying to incite violence, in my opinion. And so we're both in a dangerous moment, but also an exciting moment because we can all see the change already unfolding in terms of representation in our democracy And I think that there are a lot of people in the country who want to see that and want more of that. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people who do not, and they're just very loud about it. Right. I mean, look, I, um, 
I want to I want to take a step back based upon what you said, Zerlina, and just think about last year. Mm. Like I watched last year with and and you know I think that there's lessons for this for how we fight back at Chris Rufo and mm. others in the weaponization that they have done on racism and anti-Semitism and Islamophobia for their weaponizing it. They're, they've used the war that started on October 7th to weaponize um, the fear about anti-Semitism and Islamophobia to basically use it to get rid of DEI. Right. I mean, that's that's what they're doing. And he, at least, is very brash, Rufo, about saying that, just like after George Floyd's murder, they tried to figure out how to weaponize and exacerbate racial tensions mm -hmm. by using things like CRT, mm -hmm. critical race theory. So, you know, people don't know what these these initials mean. So it becomes, you know, opportune for them to toxify them. So how do we how do we convince people to not think about democracy as what they learned in 11th grade social studies or in 9th grade social studies, that it is something living, breathing, and important. How do we do that? Everybody has a responsibility in this country to do something between now and November to protect American democracy. And it has to be more than just voting themselves. I think people are like, oh yeah, I voted, so I'm done. And I think like an organizer, because that was my first job in politics, mm -hmm. organizing is just talking to people about what is going on, making sure people are registered to vote, making sure people know that American democracy is on the line. You know that Donald Trump said he's going to be a dictator on the first day. Did you hear that? You know, making sure that your voter registration is up to date because there are so many ways in which structurally they try to remove people. So I think that if everybody thought like an organizer, mm -hmm. right, that would be a great first step. <laughs> Um, in order to protect and preserve American democracy and thinking about ourselves as protectors of democracy and collectively as protectors of democracy, because it's only through democracy that we actually have a functioning country that can address all the issues that we care about. Thank you, Selena, very much for today. Thank you, Randy, for having me. It was so great to be here. Fantastic. And for everyone else, this is our 41st episode of Union Talk. I'm Randy Weingarten. Hey, everybody, Organizing Monster here, Juan Perez, and I'm here with my partner in crime. Well, you're, I thought I was going to start out, but hey, everyone, I'm Chris Lopez. I'm your union brother on TikTok, Instagram, all the platforms, and um, we are doing the Union Robust podcast in our new studio. Um, this is really, really cool. Um, we just got it last month, and we have a special guest uh, on the Union Robust podcast. We have Bill Fletcher Jr. So I think we brought you on really to talk about uh, the ceasefire yeah. with Palestine and Israel. I think labor by them taking a stance with the ceasefire maybe we're we're connecting bigger with with the with the world 
as a whole with workers around the globe. We have that, we're beginning to have that international solidarity. So like what, I understand that labor is taking a stance right now, or some unions are taking a stance. Why aren't all unions taking a stance with this uh, ceasefire? Why, why are people so afraid to speak on this? Is it because we're not that connected still, or are we are we in that phase right now where we're just beginning to be connected with the rest of the world? No, it's. Um, I think it's really important to understand that organized labor in the United States has always been divided on international issues. You could go back to the Spanish-American War. Um, you could look at uh, this, the approach to the Spanish Civil War of the 1930s. You could look at the divisions that happened in the 1960s around the Vietnam War. And, and so when we look at, then we have to look at Israel, the Israel and Palestinian question. And here is where domestic issues overlap international affairs. So with the founding of Israel in 1948, there developed a very strong advocacy movement within the U.S. labor movement in favor of Israel. Uh, organizations like the Jewish Labor Committee, very outspoken. And what happened in time, in part because of the alignment of the United States with Israel, and in part because there was a significant Zionist constituency within uh, organized labor, there, there was a refusal. I don't think that's overstating it, a refusal to have a real honest-to-goodness discussion about the complexity and nature of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In fact, if you would raise it, you would often get, well, at a minimum ignored, otherwise shut down. I'll give you an example of something, because I used to work for the AFL-CIO. Um, at one point, I suggested to the individual who was then the Director of International Affairs, I said, listen, why doesn't the AFL-CIO invite over to an executive council meeting a representative of the Histadru, which is the Jewish-dominated labor federation in Israel, and a representative from the Palestine General Federation of Trade Unions? Invite them over to address the executive council and to give their respective views on the question. I, I thought that that was a reasonable suggestion. The then director just almost started, I mean, they were like vibrating. They said, oh, no, no, that, that would never work. I said, well, why not? No, no, that would, that would never work. No, no, that'd be much too controversial. I said, it's, what's controversial about it? You're having points of, oh, no, no, no. That was it. The discussion was over. Wow. So what's different now is that you have a number of unions speaking up in opposition to a Zionist framework and are basically saying, no, there needs to be a ceasefire because there's genocide going on. And that's part of the difference. Um, so that you have within the union movement some very strong pro-Zionist forces 
you also have elements that are fearful of taking a pro-Palestinian stance or even one that's just saying, let's, let's look at this uh, because they're fearing um, backlash. So all of those factors are at play. Thank you, Bill. Thank you very much, sir. Well, there you okay. go, Chris. There goes another episode of Union or Bust. Um, and uh, we'll catch you on the, on the flip side. Have a good one, everyone. Welcome back to The Checkout. Lauren Baker, Deputy Director of the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. Thanks so much for making time for us once again. Great to be here, Errol. So, um, Lauren, you're one of the folks in my network who knows a lot about this whole COP28 thing. Um, and I wanted to, to spend a little time talking about it and then to talk a little bit about the work that uh, the Global Alliance has been doing and some of the demands. So can you just give us a high level of what the heck COP28 is, what these COP COP conferences are all about? Sure. Well, COP28 is the um, United Nations uh, Climate Convention. And so it's where world leaders gather to talk about, um, whoops, to talk about uh, talk about the, um, uh, the the climate agenda and make plans uh, and make commitments to addressing climate adaptation and mitigation, and so it's where really um, world leaders gather, uh, and it's really significant. Of course, you know climate change is one of the most serious um, threats and issues that we face globally. So, twenty eight indicates they've been doing this for twenty eight years. They've been doing it for twenty eight years, Errol. <laughs> Until now, what have they accomplished in those 27 years prior? Well, I think there is, um, you know, alignment, of course, around the severity of the climate crisis. We understand the evidence. Um, we understand that, um, you know, global temperatures are increasing and we understand the ramifications and impacts of that, not only for um, our planet, um, but for people as well. So. Uh, you know, I think the climate convention, we have a series of conventions in the United Nations. We have a convention on desertification, a convention on biodiversity, and we have a convention on climate. And, um, you know, we have uh, strong targets, important targets. We've achieved the 1.5 uh, target. So to make sure that we don't have global warming above 1.5, this was an incredible um uh, contribution of the conference, but there is a lot more to do. And an example of that is that this was the first uh, COP where um, the first climate COP um, where we recognize as a global community that we need to transition away from fossil fuels, which seems extraordinary when you think about um, the connection between the climate crisis and fossil fuels. So it's the first time that food systems are formally recognized in the COP process in this way. Um, and it means that those countries and others uh, will begin to embed food systems in their um, uh, national um, 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 NDCs, their um, national plans. And they'll begin to make links between the climate plans, their NDCs, and their biodiversity plans and desertification plans. So we'll have, have like more of an integrated approach 
and more of a food systems approach, linking agriculture to the rest of the food system, including food loss and waste, including diets, um, with an important recognition of um, all of the protein um, dynamics globally, which has a whole other conversation. As so in uh, are, meat eating. Uh, yeah, meat eating and the importance <laughs> yeah. of, you know, you know, so a lot of this language wasn't as strong as, um, you know, we would have liked, but I just want to say that it is significant to have this, this to work from now. So thanks so much for uh, doing your part, which is a very big part in, uh, in trying to enable that. Thanks, Errol. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Just a tiny sample of the amazing programs aired over the last week on more than 100 Labor Radio and Podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows, laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them by using the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produced the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. See you next week, everybody. Thank you.